And if you're joining us online, we're glad that you checked in with us, whether you're live or after the fact. Um, we just want to, we're going through the book of Acts, but I want to ask you a question. Does it seem to you, because it seems this way to me, that the world is not really impressed with Christians or Christianity, that people are kind of like whatever, um, they're just not overly impressed. And, and so I was thinking about that as I was reading through the passage in the last couple weeks that we're going to look at in a minute. And I was thinking, why is that? Why is it? And I think a, a couple of things. Number one, I think one of the reasons is that many people think that they have met Christians and they have heard Christianity. They've heard the gospel. And they think they know kind of what the, the gospel is and they think they've met Christians and they're not impressed. And it, 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 it doesn't seem like it is relevant to their lives. And I think that's where we're at at this point. And I think it, because you know, People need to not just hear the gospel, they need to see the gospel. They need to see the gospel lived out. And I don't think they're seeing that. I, I, I think that they look at our lives and we say, we believe in the gospel and we trust Jesus. And they go, yeah, but you're not really much different than me. So I'm not really sure what, what it, what's the difference because I don't see anything. That's what I want to talk about this weekend, because the gospel really is good news, but it's, it's good news, but it's bad news first, because the gospel says something about us that we don't want to hear. It says, you're a sinner, you're lost, and you need a savior. And we want to think, listen, I don't think most people who are, generally, I don't think most people think, well, I'm not, I'm not a horrible person. I mean, people acknowledge that there's we do bad things, right? So I don't think we have to convince anyone in this audience or anybody watching that we've done some bad things, things that we're ashamed of, things that we wish we could do differently, but you know, it's too late. So I think we would all acknowledge that we've sinned, we've fallen short, we've done bad things. I don't think we have to be convinced of that. We'll generally compare ourselves to others and say, well, I may have, but I'm not as bad as, you know, we, do, we play that game. But that's the gospel. The gospel says you've done some bad things and you're lost. But it also says you need help. Now, if you've ever been out swimming and gotten into trouble, whether in a lake or in the ocean or even just in your own pool, and you, you, you're, or you've seen your kids and it's like, oh, oh, they need help, you know? And at that moment, you have this kind of go, oh, no, what are we going to do here, right? That's kind of where we're at. The Bible says that we're, we're, we're drowning and that we need a savior, and that we need somebody to come and rescue us. And that's the second part of the gospel. It says that you're lost, you're, you, you, you have failed, you have sinned, but also that you need help, you need a savior. And that savior is Jesus Christ who got off of his throne, came from heaven to earth as a rescue party of one. He gave his life so that you could live. He took your sins so that you could be forgiven. And the Bible says when you call upon him, when you ask him to be your savior, because he gave his life to you, now you give your life to him. When that happens, he begins to do a work and make you into the person he designed you to be. That's the gospel. Now, some people think they've heard that, but a lot of people haven't. And more than people than that haven't seen the gospel played out with those who call themselves his disciples. And I think that's the problem. 
The world isn't impressed. So what we want to do is we want to turn to Acts chapter 14, and we're going to go through, there's so many of these stories in the book of Acts that are just, they're just crazy. I mean, just, there's so many things happening, and they're wild things. And we're going to run into the one of those right now. So Acts chapter 14, what's happening? Barnabas and Paul are kind of going from town to town, and they're teaching the gospel, the good news. And people are being healed, and people are, you know, believing in Jesus, and a lot of good things are happening. But there's also people who are kind of going, I don't like this. And they're stirring up the crowds, and there's conflict, and there's stoning, and there's all sorts of weird stuff going on. Uh, so let me just, we'll walk through the text and then we'll talk about it. So Acts chapter 14, starting at verse 8. Now, let me just say one thing while you're looking for that, because some of you are looking for that. Some of you, well, I'm already there. What are you waiting for? All right. I know some of you know your Bibles and you, you know the Old Testament and New Testament. You know Acts comes after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John hold the horse while I get on. Acts is right after that. You know all that. But some of you are here, some of you are watching. You don't know where the book of Acts is. You don't know anything. You don't know a lick about Acts. That's okay. That's okay. Because there's a number of people in this crowd and watching who don't know either. So Acts chapter 14, or 14 verse 8. And what, I, what I'm going to try to do today is I'm going to try to read through this passage and explain it and then apply it. So that whether you know anything about the Bible or a lot about the Bible, there'll be something that God will, you'll take today for your, for your own life. All right, Acts chapter 14 verse 8. In Lystra there was a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, it's an incredible miracle because he didn't just like get up and go to physical therapy. He immediately jumped up and began to walk, and he had never walked in his life. Okay, you ever watched little kids when they try to walk? Do, do, do. And the parents, you know, your parents, you're going, that's one, that's two. He took three steps, you know, or whatever. He, he, he just got up and he walked. I mean, it was just like that, that, that happened, right? So Peter, or excuse me, Paul sees a need and immediately meets the need. We're going to see this is a very common thing that happens in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and, the, and Peter, and also with Jesus, that they saw needs and they healed people and cast out demons and uh, did a lot of different things like that. Let's jump back into the text. When the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they shouted in, uh, Lyconian, in the Lyconian language, the gods must have come down, or have come down, to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the, the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer them sacrifices. So they're out teaching by the city gate, and they see this man who they know has been healed. They know him personally, and he jumps up, and there's a miracle. And so all of a sudden, they begin to call them the names of the gods, Zeus and Hermes. Now you go, this has happened before. This seems like an overreaction by these people. Why are they overreacting? Well, they had a legend. They had a belief, 
uh, that their, their city was visited years before by the gods, Zeus and Hermes, and they were not welcomed by the people, so they were judged. So they thought, okay, here it is again. The gods have come again. We're not gonna mess it up a second time. We're gonna acknowledge the gods. We're going to give them glory, and we'll be, you know, we're not gonna make the same mistake our parents made. That's essentially what is going on here. That's why they're reacting the way they are, okay? And, and so this is the background of what's happening. And then notice what it says. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We are bringing you the good news, telling you that to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without, his, without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So Paul and Barnabas quickly begin to tear their clothes. It's a sign of, uh, they're aghast, they're, they're just mortified by this, and they begin to say, we are not gods, we're only human, and, and there is only one God, and he's the one that gives you rain and food and everything good. We're, that's not us. And um, then they go on. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and won the crowds over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, um, he got up and went back into the city. Now my question is, where's Barnabas at this point? You know, did he go, hey, I'm gonna sleep in. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I, I, who knows, some time has passed. Paul has probably been out preaching with Barnabas. This one time, Barnabas wasn't with him. And, but Paul is left for dead. Now, I don't know what they did. I don't know if they went to his neck or to his wrist. And, yeah, I got no pulse. Or, but he just got up. And more than that, he walks back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city, won a large crowd of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had placed their trust. So my, the rest of the time I wanna talk about how can we better impact our world? And don't think collectively, think individually. How can you better impact your world. And I think there's four things that we can find from this passage that are really important. The first, and we see this, we, we see these things here. The first one is we can serve the needy. One of the first things that, that Paul did was he saw the needs around him and he met the needs around him. Now, I think this is really important. I, I think that um, the church should be known for helping people who are struggling, who are helping people who are in need, 
helping people with their physical needs. I think that's really important for the church to be involved in that. I believe many times that opens a door. What the church is known for is being proud and being arrogant and being, having all the answers and being kind of stingy. And, and you know, it, it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. See, if we're going to impact our world, it's, when, it's going to be as we take up the servant's towel and wrap it around our waist and see the needs around us and begin to do. Now, here's what I'm talking about because we make this all a collective thing. I want it to be more of an individual thing. I am absolutely convinced that week after week, day after day, that God is bringing you good Samaritan moments in your life that he has given you opportunities that you, only you, you're the best person to minister to a person that God has brought divinely across your path to do something, to help that person. And I think what we're doing is we're so busy with our own lives, we're so caught up with our own, our own things that we don't see the needs right around us. We can't solve all the problems in the world, but what we can do is be cognizant of the ones that God brings across our door. You know, remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's very interesting. Two religious leaders walk by and leave the man half dead. It was the Samaritan that stopped. This man came across his path and the Samaritan stopped and did something. And the point Jesus is making in that, in that parable is this. God is still bringing people across your path that he's counting on you, you, you to do something. It may be small, it may be big, but something. Now, it doesn't say that the Samaritan was good friends with this man for the rest of his life or had to move into his house or... It, it was a short moment where this man ministered. And, you know, that reminds me of the parable of the sheep and the goats. Remember the parable? And it says, you will come to me on that day, and I will, I, Jesus says something like he says, he says, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you, you visited me. I was naked and you gave me clothes. And he said, when did we do that, Lord? When you did it to the least of these, my brother, and you did it to me. Folks, the church is not really known. Christians are not really known for being the first to meet the needs, the physical needs of the people in, in their own lives. We start doing that, people are gonna stop and take notice. Why are you doing that? I mean, the whole town basically was amazed by it. It turned the whole town around when Peter healed this man. And they did it over and over and over. Um, Two verses. James says this in, James, in chapter 127. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted from the world. I think those are two things that Christians have overlooked. I think we are absolutely polluted by the world and I think we are absolutely blind to the needs around us. This one I think you have in your notes. 
Isaiah 1.17, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. When we start serving the real felt needs around us, people will stop and they will take notice. But if we're too busy, if our eyes aren't focused, if we don't wake up daily and say, God, whatever divine appointment you have, help me to be awake and alert and ready for those needs. Because here's the thing. They come when you're in a rush. They come when you're busy. They come when you, they don't come at the opportune times. It's not like you're sitting around and all of a sudden you got nothing better to do and God says, okay, well then do this. It's usually not that. That's the first one. Uh, the second way I think will make a, a, a more of an impact in our world is that we help them see their gods. Now, what do I mean by that? So when these people came rushing out and they began to bow down and began to offer, you know, they had the priest from the temple come and bring a sacrifice to offer to, to Paul and Barnabas. And they go, no, no, no. And, 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 and notice what Peter says. He says, he says, we are bringing you good news telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Peter's basically saying, don't live for the worthless things. Don't live for these gods. Live for the real God, the God that brings the rain, the food, the God who provides you with things. Turn to that God. Don't turn to these worthless things. Now, before... You decide to go and point out everyone. Now, we, we say, oh, those people are so superstitious. They worship these gods. We don't worship gods today. Yeah, we do. And by the way, Christians, if you're, and I, I'm assuming we have Christians here. We have people who are probably on defense, people who are just seeking and don't know where they're at at this point. That's what we generally have on the weekend and watching. Let me ask you a question. When you think about what's important in your life, what would you, I always ask, I ask people and I say, tell me what the top three things in your life, and they write this down. And then I'll say, well, tell me what, what you do with your time, your talent, your treasure, and it's a different list, <laughs> right? What is, what is a God? Um, every one of us has a God. And before we go and point other people's gods out, we ought to look in the mirror and say, what's my God? Because, and, and here's what I think is a great definition, and I didn't make it up. A good definition of a God is this. Someone or something who brings you your ultimate sense of security, significance, or satisfaction. All right? Uh, what I mean by that, and let me get more specific, um, we take good things that God has given to us and we make them God things. Now, let me give you some specific examples. Um, we all want to be involved in relationships. We want to have those relationships. And if we talk about uh, um, the marriage relationship and what our pop culture says, our pop culture basically says the, re, the way you're going to find security, significance, and, and satisfaction in life is you're going to find that perfect person. And so you're on this quest for the perfect person. Are they the perfect person? And so you go into the relationship hoping that this person will fill the void in your life, that they will be enough, that they will be more than enough, that they will make you feel secure and satisfied and, and, and secure 
significant and feel good about yourself. And to a certain extent, relationships could do that. But here's the problem. They're asking for the same thing from you. And so we have this idea that we have to marry this right person, but then all of a sudden, maybe shortly after we get married, maybe a couple weeks, a couple months, maybe a couple years, we realize this person is a doofus. <laughs> and, and if we're honest, so are we. But we believe there's somebody the only thing that we did was we chose wrong. We just have to go out and find another one. And so we say, this person must be it. And this person. And you know, if you go to John 4, that's exactly what's happened with a woman at the well. Because Jesus is talking about living water, and she's going, good, I won't have to come to the well anymore. And then he says, go get your husband. You go, what? Where did that come from? But see, Jesus saw behind. He saw the God in her life. And her God was to find Mr. Right. And Jesus says, well, you've had five and you're on number six. And what Jesus was saying to this woman and what Jesus says about relationships is this. If you ask another person to be God in your life, to give you your ultimate sense of security, satisfaction, and significance, you are in for a disappointment. And what does Jesus say to her? He says, I can give you living water that will fill that emptiness and that void in your life. I can give you the ultimate security, significance, and satisfaction that you've been dreaming of and wanting. Then when you go into a relationship, you don't go in needy. We are in a disaster time as far as relationships and marriages because we're asking them to be, we're asking the other person to fill our void. We're asking them to be God in our life. Let me give you another one. This is more true with men. Men are oftentimes defined by their career, their hobby, what they're good at, but you know, generally they do the job of their career. When women get together, they talk about, they say, do you have any kids? How old are they? And you know, all that stuff. When guys get together, what do they say? Do you have a job? What do you do? You know, and that, that's who you are. So let's just say that you, you, you're a guy and your career is what defines you and you're really good at what you do and you really excel and you try very hard and you've worked years and years and years and all of a sudden you go in and the boss says you're fired. What do you do now? That was my security. That was my significance. That was my satisfaction. By, by the way, those of you that are getting to retirement age, think through that retirement and what that looks like. That's really important to think through. I'm getting to that place where you have to think about what am I going to do when I'm not working, or what, what, what does that next step look like? What's that next chapter look like? Because it can't be just getting out of bed and hanging out. It can't be. God didn't design us for that. Let me give one to the ladies, the moms. Moms, you're wonderful. You do a great job. And you have these kids that you, you, you give birth to them, you raise them up, you love them, you throw your life into them, they become, in many ways, your reason to live, your purpose for living. You dot, you dot on them, you take care of them, you want them to grow up, and they do grow up. 
And sometimes they grow up and they're not grateful, they're not thankful, they become different than what you've pictured and desired. And all of a sudden, motherhood has become a real challenge. And you're struggling. Because you had a different plan, you had a different vision, but they have their own free wills. You've tried to do your best, you haven't been perfect, who is? But you built your life on being a great mom, and you are a great mom. But things aren't turning out the way you planned. Let me give you one more. Let's just say that you're, uh, you're very health conscious. You've always been athletic. You've always been, you eat healthy. You take care of yourself. You're trying to hold off aging and you, you work out religiously and nothing wrong with it. It's a good thing. And again, all these things are good things, but we take them and we make them God. We make them the thing, the God thing, right? And so you've worked hard. You, 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 you do all of that stuff and, and you, you're in great shape and you work out hard and you watch what you eat and you go into the doctor's office and the doctor in one sentence destroys your life. I think we have a spot. We're going to need more testing, but I think it's cancer. Now what? When your idol is in jeopardy, your world is wrecked. When that's all you have. That's what he was, that's why Jesus said to the woman, he says, you're building on these doofus guys and they're all letting you down. Look to me. On the other hand, when you, when you build your life on Jesus, you find joy in your job. You find joy in relationships. You find joy in raising a family. You find joy in being healthy and, and doing all that stuff, but it's not the final determining factor of your life. It's one part of your life. And when you build your house on Christ Jesus, when you, when, you, when you say, Jesus, you are the reason I exist. You are the reason I breathe. You are the reason that I have a pulse right now. When you start to think about life that way and you realize this is only a blip in time compared to the rest of eternity and you have that eternal perspective on life, then your life will have storms but it will not be destroyed. That's why Jesus tells the story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about the two houses. One is built on the sand and one is built on the rock. And Jesus says, anyone who basically follows my word and trusts me will be like a house built on the rock. The storms come down. By the way, the storms come on both houses. Neither house was spared from the storm. But when the storm came down on the house on the sand, it was just decimated. It was destroyed. It was wrecked when the house came down, when the, when the storm came down on the house on the rock. It, it was struggling, but it held. When you have Jesus as your foundation, your world may be rocked, but it won't be wrecked. All right, here's the third. And, and 
So the world needs to see that they're, they're trusting in these, these things that are going to let them down, and you point them to Jesus. That's what Jesus did to the woman. He says, you're trusting in this. Let me show you what the real deal. That's why Paul says, turn from these worthless things to God, right? All right, here's the third thing. We must point them to Jesus. So the people are bowing down, they're worshiping, the priest is bringing some sacrifices, and Paul is tearing his clothes, and Barnabas, and they're going, no, 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 we're not gods. We are representatives of God. And today, too many Christians, especially pastors and teachers, and those on the internet, and those on TV are saying, look at me. But we're only servants of the king. We're not the star of the show. Paul says, it's God who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. It's God who has shown his kindness bringing food and rain. God gets all the glory. Paul was very quick to say, it's not about us. We are not, it is him. And we need to be mirrors to God. We need to reflect the Father. That's why I love this passage in Matthew 5. It says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And then he says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. We have missed that principle, folks. We want to receive the accolades and the glory and be acknowledged. And Peter says it's not about us, it's about him. He's the one who's bringing the rain. He's the one who's bringing the food. We're just his messengers. And until we get to, we need to get to that place. The phrase I use is we are just beggars who found the bread of life. That's all we are. We found the bread of life, and we can only point people to who the one who gives the living bread, who gives life. We are not the life givers. We are the ones who point to the life giver. What we're talking about here is humility. The first word that comes to people's minds when they think of Christians is not humility. It's arrogance, pride. Last one. This one you're not going to like. So you're thinking, well, I don't know if I liked any of the ones you talked about. <laughs> this is going to go against, too, a lot of what you're hearing on TV and on the Internet. And again, it's not, it's, it's not me. It's what Scripture says. Let me just read you from, this is from the passage right before the one we read. This is Acts 14, verse 3. Notice what's happening here. So they stayed there, this is Paul and Barnabas, for a considerable time, speaking out courageously for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace, granting miraculous signs and wonders to be performed through their hands. There's the signs and wonders that were going. But the population of the city was divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When both the Gentiles and the Jews, together with their rulers, made an attempt to mistreat them and stone them. So immediately they're in jeopardy. Their lives are in jeopardy. They're getting stoned. Their people are plotting behind their back. There, there is this, there's this force of people that are anti-Paul and Barnabas, and they're coming after them. So the, the thing I want you to see is the early Christians 
as they were being thrown to lions, as they were walking on the Appian Way to be crucified, they were singing hymns. We have actual testimony of those who, right before they were being executed, where they were being told, you neither recant your faith or die, and they basically say, kill me. I mean, this is what the early church did. The early Christians saw suffering as a badge of honor. They understood that there is more to life than just this life. They lived well, they suffered well, and they died well because they had an eternal hope. And I think too many Christians feel, I need to get my life in now and I need to live it all out now because if I don't live it all out now, I'm gonna miss out on something. And that's a misunderstanding of heaven. Paul says about heaven, he says, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, what the Lord has laid up for those who love him. In other words, what Paul says is, let your imagination go wild because your greatest thought of what heaven may be and what God has in store with you won't even measure up when you're there and you get to experience it. But we don't believe it. It's like the little boy who's playing, C.S. Lewis said, it's like a little boy who's playing in a mud puddle and his mom sees him and says, come on, let's go to the ocean. And the little boy says, no, I wanna play here. No, you really wanna see the ocean. Cyprian, who is the Christian theologian and bishop at Carthage said, we are not as afraid of death, we are not as afraid of suffering, It is not the end of the world if we suffer. How do you handle suffering in adversity? As a Christian. I'm gonna say something that is gonna go counter to what you may have heard but I think it's absolutely true and taught in Scripture. Suffering is always a part of a disciple of Jesus Christ. You will always suffer. Suffering is part of this life, period. You won't escape it. Jesus said, in the world you will have what? Tribulation. If if Jesus died and was executed on a cross and his disciples were all executed and the, the, the early Christians were all basically mar- you know, martyred for their faith. What is going to happen when you begin to follow Jesus Christ? There's going to be persecution. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be difficulties. It's part of the lot of a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why we read a passage like James chapter one in verse two, and we're, we're going, I don't really know what he's saying here. This is the brother of Jesus, and he says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of various kinds. You go, what is wrong with James? Why would I, cons-? well, he goes on to say, this can produce maturity in your life. That's the win. But he's not, he's not being like, like, I love pain, give me more. No, that's not what he's doing. But he is acknowledging that suffering is the lot 
for his disciples. It is not an exception, it's the rule. And you're being told by people that if you're a Christian and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should never suffer. And we wonder why some people are walking away from God the first moment they suffer, because they've been told that that shouldn't be happening to them. But it happened to every Christian that has ever followed Jesus Christ and it isn't gonna stop this side of heaven. It's part of our lot. How you handle suffering goes a long way towards whether you become more like the king and more people find his kingdom. We need Christians who suffer well and die well. (laughs) We We are in the Western world and that is such a foreign thought for us. When you're in China and you're in Russia and you're in other parts of the world where they're being absolutely destroyed for their faith, They get that. They absolutely get what suffering is all about. And by the way, that's far more a population of the world than than in America. But they get the idea that suffering is part of your lot as a follower of Jesus Christ. And we just have to come to a place where we say, that's part of this life. What does Jesus promise, that we won't suffer? No, he promises that when you are suffering, he will meet you in the storm. He will meet you in the valley. He will be with you. He understands what you're going through. Those are the promises, not that you'll be excluded from it. Do you see what's going on here? The world's not seeing any of this. I've seen just recently someone who's gone through incredibly challenging suffering, the unknown, the just, God, you are all I have and I don't know where to turn. I don't know what the answer is. I I know what I want, but I don't know where to, I don't know how it's gonna happen and it, it seems like it's gonna have to be a miracle. And I've seen this person not waver an inch. I've seen them be an incredible encouragement to other Christians who are trying to encourage them. And I think it's awesome. I think it's powerful. I think it's the truth of the gospel coming out in a powerful way. I think everyone around this person has seen something that is great. They have held on to Jesus, and Jesus held on to them. But you know what? Sadly, this is the exception. Exceptional Christians are the exception today. I think we need to change that. I think exceptional Christians ought to be the rule, because they're not. And I think the day that we start doing some of the things that we've just talked about this morning, I think the day that we start living that way is the day that the world will stop and take notice and say, there's something going on in, in these people who are followers of Jesus Christ. 
who are his disciples. There's, there's something going on in their life that I can't explain it. I don't know what it is, but I want to find out what it is. And that's what the world is missing. And that's why they see Christians as irrelevant and the gospel as immaterial to their lives. So what is it in your life that God needs to do to make you a better witness of the gospel? Listen to the Holy Spirit and allow him to direct your hearts today. Let's pray. Father, as we, we conclude our time around your word, we pray that the Spirit would, not, would begin the work in our hearts, that whatever we need to change, you would bring to our minds. We can't change everything right at, right at once, but something needs to change. It may be that we're holding on to these gods, and that's something that Christians hold on to a lot. It may be that we're not being aware of the Samaritan situations that you are bringing across our, our, our daily path. We're just not aware of it. It may be, Father, that uh, as we go through suffering, we just, we, we, we question it, we, we, we act as though you aren't there, and, and we just, just struggle with that. I don't know, Father. But I pray whatever has to work, what work needs to be done in each and every one of our hearts, that you would do it. So the gospel can be heard and seen by a world that desperately needs it right now. We ask it in Jesus' name.